Well, I encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, as we continue the march toward Jesus on the cross and ultimately the empty tomb on Easter. And as you turn there, I want to give you, I'm going to give you my big idea, my main point right from the very beginning. And that is that God has wired us in such a way that when we recognize something that is supremely valuable, we are willing to give up something that is extremely valuable to pursue it. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. There was a man that uh, collected baseball cards a few years ago, lived in Nevada. And, and as he was scrolling through eBay, he came across a Honus Wagner baseball card. And as he looked at the bids, the bids were like $150. But he knew that this particular card, depending on what condition it was worth, could be worth upwards of several million dollars. And so he didn't have much money, but he put all the money he had toward it, and he bought this card for $170. Last year, this card sold for $6.6 million. So out of all the thousands of people that may have been scrolling eBay and, and came across this card, most of them didn't recognize the worth of this card, because if they had they would have given everything they had, mortgaged their house if they had to, in order to get something that was supremely valuable. But you see, sometimes we give all that we have to something that we think is supremely valuable, but actually is worthless. A good illustration of this is just a little over a week ago. <laughs> Tom Brady's last touchdown pass football was put up for auction. And a man spent $518,000 to purchase this football. Less than 24 hours later, Tom Brady came out of retirement. So barring some completely unexpected development, this man has just spent $518,000 on something that is essentially worthless. And what we're going to see this morning is that when our hearts are enthralled with Christ, when we recognize his true value, then we willingly, eagerly give all that we have and all that we are in order to serve him because we recognize that he is the treasure in the field and he is the pearl of great price. We pick up in Matthew chapter 26 as Jesus has just concluded his final discourse, his final teaching and training of the disciples in Matthew chapter 25, teaching them how to live as kingdom citizens in the time until his second coming. So we begin in verse 1 of Matthew 26. It says, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So this was Passover time, which probably doesn't mean a whole lot to you, but in the Jewish calendar, this was one of their biggest celebrations. Probably the closest thing we would have is, is like Christmas or Thanksgiving, where everybody comes together, but with a specifically religious purpose to remember God's deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. After 430 years of bondage, they were freed from their oppressors, and they were brought into relationship with God through the covenant. And so there was always this messianic expectation, this longing for deliverance that made it 
prone to riots and trying to overthrow the government. For that reason, the Roman presence militarily was stout. They were constantly looking for any disturbance that they might quickly quell it, lest there be riots and revolts. And so this is the scene here as Jesus now is preparing. It's Wednesday before he would die on the cross on Friday. And he tells the disciples, you know that the Passover is coming. They're looking forward to the celebration, but then he makes explicit what's going to happen there. And the Son of Man will be delivered up in order to be crucified. You see, Jesus knew that he was to die on Passover, on a day that was rich with both theological and historical significance. And so all of his life, he had been marching toward the cross. He knew this was exactly according to God's plan. And so everything had been orchestrated leading him to this moment. What I want you to notice is now the scene cuts. If it were a movie, the the camera would cut now to the high priest's house, Caiaphas's house, for a secret and sinister meeting of the chief priests. You see, they had been trying to overthrow Jesus, trying to challenge and discredit him, but they were unsuccessful at doing that. And so they had determined that they were going to have to kill him in order to eliminate him. And so they were gathered in the high priest's house, and they were plotting together how they could secretly and quietly put Jesus to death. But notice what it says here in verse 5. But they said, not during the feast. They knew that Rome was everywhere and that the crowds were expectant and that if they were to try to make a move against this person that some people believe was the Messiah, there almost certainly would be trouble. And so they said, we are going to kill Jesus, but we're going to do it after the feast and we're going to do it in a secret and quiet way. Do you see the conflict here? Jesus says, I'm going to die in two days. The chief priests say, we're going to kill him in nine days. Jesus says, I'm going to be publicly crucified for everybody to see. The chief priests say, we're going to do it quietly and silently. What I want us to see here this morning is that Jesus was in complete control. Because the most powerful people in Israel could scheme and plot. They could make their plans and think that they were the ones who were in control. But Christ is in command knowing what will happen and when. Jesus was not some helpless victim that was killed because of an act of a riot by a chaotic crowd. No, he was a willing sacrifice who had set his eyes on the cross and he knew that while the Passover lambs were being slaughtered in the temple, that he would be dying on the cross and that then he would say it is finished as the final and perfect Passover lamb. But now Matthew does something interesting for us. He actually shifts the scene to an event that took place four days earlier. So he doesn't tell us that this happens chronologically, and John and Mark tell us that this is something that happened on Saturday before Palm Sunday, when Jesus and his disciples were in Bethany. Now Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead perhaps a week or two weeks earlier, and there is a banquet that is being given in Jesus' honor, recognizing his greatness. And we're told in John that Lazarus' family were there. Lazarus himself, Mary, and Martha. And it's held in the house of a man named Simon the leper. And so you can imagine the scene as they are all reclining at the table. They wouldn't have sat in seats. They would have been reclining on their elbow, leaning forward to take the food. There would have been smells of warm and delicious food and the sounds of lively laughter and conversation. 
as Jesus is being celebrated at this particular banquet. But it says in verse 6, Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it out on his head as he reclined at the table. Now John tells us that this woman was Mary, the sister of Lazarus, as she responded in gratitude and joy for what he had done for her brother. But Matthew doesn't include this detail. In fact, all throughout this story, he keeps her her name anonymous. And I believe the reason why Matthew has put this story here is to contrast her selfless and sacrificial devotion to the selfless and greedy grasping of Judas. As he goes to the chief priest and says, what will you give me? to betray Jesus into your hands. So picture the scene. Jesus is there reclining at the table. There's laughter and conversation, and suddenly this woman moves towards Jesus with an alabaster flask of very expensive perfume. It would have had a long neck and a stopper. It would have been worth 300 denarii, or more than a year's wages for a common laborer. So imagine, let's just say in our common terms, $25,000 in one bottle of perfume. Suddenly, the conversation stops and all the attention turns to this woman as she moves towards Jesus. And she breaks the neck open for it had been sealed because it was so expensive. It had been imported from India, very likely, as a perfume. And then she proceeds to pour this perfume on the head of Jesus, but not just a couple of drops, not just a dab of this perfume on her Savior. But no, she begins to pour it out lavishly and liberally on his head. And we read in the parallel accounts, but she didn't even stop there. She pours it out on his head and continues on to pour it even on his feet as she anoints him. And what you need to understand is that typically those who would be anointed would have been the king's and the prophets. And even the very name Messiah means the anointed one. And so it may very well be that this act of devotion, this expression of love, was meant to communicate her love for Christ and her belief in him as her savior and as the coming Messiah. So there's a few things about her worship here in this story that I want us to highlight and to understand because I think it teaches us a great deal about what it means to worship. Because this woman was a model of worship. First of all, I want you to understand that she was not doing this because someone said, this is what religious people do. This is the law you have to keep. This is the thing that everyone expects of you to do. No, this was a spontaneous expression of lavish and extravagant devotion because she had experienced God's grace She had glimpsed his glory, and she was so filled with love and joy and satisfaction in him that she turned and reached for her most valuable possession, her most precious thing that she owned. And she said, I'm going to willingly pour this out for you because my heart is so enthralled with who you are. What I want us to understand as we begin this morning is that worship is not just simply actions that we do. Songs that we sing, or studies that we do, or prayers that we pray, or money that we give. Worship is the response of our heart in love and gratitude and joy to who God is. It's not just simply going through the motions. 
It's placing him in a supremely valuable place and orienting everything else in light of that. So we begin by recognizing that her model of, lo- of worship begins with genuine love. This woman is not just serving out of duty or obligation. She spontaneously responds with love for Jesus, and she is focused on honoring and adoring him. She longs for everybody to see, this is who I love. This is the one that I am living for. And when we really love something, we don't hesitate to give ourselves generously and lavishly for it. And that's the second point that I want us to see. That is, she gives it with total devotion. This may very well have been her dowry, something that was given to her that she might get married someday, but she doesn't hesitate to pour it out on him. She sacrifices and spends her most precious possession on Jesus because he is supremely worthy of anything we could ever give. You know, when we truly love something, we don't hesitate to give something greatly for it. I'm reminded of when Katie and I just started dating. We were students at Cedarville, and I'm pretty frugal. You need to understand that. But we started dating, and she had always wanted to see Les Mis on Broadway. And so over Christmas break, I spent $130 per ticket and drove from Ohio up to Maine, Maine to New York City, New York City back to Maine, and then Maine back to Ohio in order to show her that I loved her. You see, sometimes something that seems extravagant or ridiculous to someone else is simply an expression of what we truly love and what we truly value. My fear is that sometimes what we give Jesus is only our leftovers. We give him simply a token amount to show that we respect him rather than a lavish amount to show him that we adore him. But as a result, we don't actually sacrifice for him. We simply say, Jesus, I'll give you a little bit of my time. I'll give you a little bit of my money. I'll give you a little bit of my attention. My fear is that our worship costs us nothing. I'm reminded of this verse from 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 24 where David is wanting to buy the threshing floor in order to create a place where there can be dedicated worship of God. And Aruna says, I will give you this field for free. You don't have to pay anything. However, the king David said to Aruna, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. For I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, which costs me nothing. Let me ask you, if someone were to look at your life if they were to observe the way that you're living, the way that you spend your time, your energy, and your resources, would they conclude you must love Jesus an awful lot? Would they observe that your life is being devoted and poured out in extravagant sacrifice for Jesus? Or are we giving him a token amount as a polite expression that he is important to us? So if someone looked at how you spend your time and resources, would they conclude that you must really love Jesus. So think about that for a moment. Do you give Jesus the best? Or do you give him your leftovers? You see, Mary reached for the most precious thing that she had that she might demonstrate to everybody who was watching, I love Jesus, and I long to serve him. So when you wake up in the morning, do you give Jesus the very best of your first morning hours? 
Or do you check your email? Do you get going on other things? And then you try to fit Jesus in in the margins of your day. When it comes time for you to get paid, do you give Jesus the first of what you've been given as an expression that all that you have and all that you are is given to you by God? Or do you wait until the end of the month to see if there's any left over that you might devote it to God? When it comes to serving, do you prioritize showing love to others in generous and sacrificial ways? Or do you say, I'm really a busy person and this season of life doesn't give me a lot of opportunity, so I'll give him what I can, but quite honestly right now that's not a whole lot. Mary demonstrates great sacrifice because she had great love. Great gratitude naturally overflows in giving. I want you to imagine a scenario. Imagine if you were in need of a kidney transplant and your life depended on it. And that over time, you waited and you got the word out and your family was praying and waiting and finally someone voluntarily stepped up and said, I am a match and I will donate my kidney to you. And imagine that then you have the surgery and you both are in the recovery room and you, you turn to this person who's just given you a kidney and saved your life and said, hey, I really, really appreciate what you did for me. Here is a $5 beans and cream card to show you how much I appreciate it. That'd be ridiculous, wouldn't it? It isn't proportional. If they have given you so much, how could you give them so little? But you see, that's the message that this woman shows us. That when we truly love God and our heart is filled with satisfaction in him and gratitude toward him, we give sacrificially with total devotion. The third thing I want you to notice is that it is proportional. That is, she gave what she had to give and she gave her very best. She gave what was extremely valuable to her in order to demonstrate what was supremely valuable to her. But you know, there's another story, a story of a woman that was very poor. And in fact, all she had was two copper coins. But when it came time to give in the temple, in spite of the fact that all the other people were going into the temple and giving far more than what she had to give, this is what Luke tells us happened. He saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins, and he said, truly, I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them, for they all out of their surplus put into the offering, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. You see, Jesus doesn't call us to equal giving, because to some he has entrusted five talents, to some he has entrusted one. What he has called us to is not equal giving, but equal sacrifice. That is, that we give the very best that we have in order to express our love and devotion to God. Let me give you an illustration. When our son Josh was very little, he had a favorite stuffed animal, a little bunny that he very creatively called Bunny. And, and he, he carried Bunny with him everywhere he went. And when Josh was about two and a half years old, his younger brother Andrew was born. And I can still remember that there were times where Andrew would start crying and fussing as newborns are prone to do. And with just the sweetest, most sincere heart, he would go over and just put Bunny next to him. Now, from a value perspective, you'd look at it and say, that thing's worthless, it's tattered, it's dirty. But to him, that was his most precious possession. That was the thing that he had known was a place of comfort and joy, and yet he would give it as an expression of his love. So what God calls us to this morning is not equal giving, but equal sacrifice, proportional to our love for him. 
Finally, I want you to notice that it is humble service. John actually tells us that when this woman was anointing the head of Jesus, she continued on down and anointed his feet. Now what you need to know is in that culture, feet were considered the most unclean thing. They were considered disgusting. And yet a woman's hair were considered their most beautiful and honored possession. So what I want you to see here is that Mary, this woman, says, I will willingly take my most precious possession and pour it all out on you because you are worthy. I will take my most beautiful and honorable feature and gladly use it as a rag to wipe your feet because you are great and I am grateful. And while the disciples were busy jockeying for a place at his right or at his left, this woman humbly wants to be at his feet. So we see in this example a woman that was willing to give everything for Jesus. That because he was inexpressibly wonderful, she was unreservedly worshipful. I don't know where this intersects with you this morning, but for every one of us, we need to consider what it is that we worship and what it is that we are holding back. Because this woman demonstrated for all to see that she really loved Jesus. And as this room was filled with the perfume, it was unmistakable that he was his, her greatest priority, her deepest joy, and her source of ultimate satisfaction. But now I want you to notice that although everyone observed her act of worship, not everyone appreciated it. We begin in verse 8, and it says, And when the, woman, the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. You see, the disciples, as they observed this, put on pragmatic compassion, saying, this is a waste. In the process, they're judging this woman in her action and ultimately judging Jesus as unworthy of such a lavish expression of devotion. The kings and the rulers of those days would have put far more than this on themselves. But the disciples looked at Jesus and say, why this waste. Now John actually tells us that Judas was the spokesperson of this group. He was the one that spoke up and said, this should have been sold and given to the poor. All they could see was the dollar signs that this was worth rather than recognizing the supreme worth of Jesus. But John also clues us into one other thing. And the reason Judas was saying this is because he was the keeper of the money. And as he saw something so extremely valuable, he longed to have those coins rattling in his change purse. He wanted to be able to pilfer from it for his own sake and for his own gain. And as we'll see in a little bit, Jesus actually rebukes them and says that what this woman has done is beautiful and not wasteful. And so Judas is actually a remarkable contrast to this woman. This woman was able to pour out all of her earthly treasure for the sake of her relationship with Jesus. But Judas wastes his worship because he is willing to throw away his relationship with Jesus in the pursuit of just a meager amount of worldly treasure. And so at this moment, Judas masks his greed with religious piety. He pretends to care about others when he was only living for himself. Jesus recognized that. 
This woman had poured out perfume that was worth about $25,000. What was Judas's relationship with Jesus worth? Well, we're about to see that beginning in verse 14. It says, Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. Now, many people speculate as to why Judas, at this point in time, finally went to betray Jesus, whether he was disappointed that Jesus wasn't going to be the Messiah that he expected, or whether he was waiting for Rome to be overthrown and he had finally given up patience. But the text only tells us one motive, and so that's what we want to focus on this morning. That was greed. This woman poured out perfume that was worth $25,000. Judas betrayed Jesus for 1000 says, what will you give me to betray the Son of God into your hands? And this is startling. It's shocking for us. But the truth is, every one of us, every day in the decisions that we make, we reveal what Jesus is worth to us. In this moment, Judas showed how little the relationship with Jesus was worth to him. When given the opportunity to choose loving God or loving money, he said, I'll choose money. I'll invest my life in treasure. And we, at this point in time, as we understand the whole picture of Scripture, we look at that and say, how foolish. Judas, why would you throw away something that has infinite worth for something that is so temporary and fleeting and worthless? The answer is startlingly simple and shockingly convicting to every one of us. That is, his heart was enthralled with something other than God. He had come to love and trust and obey something other than a relationship with God. And once our heart shifts in that way, we're willing to serve that with our very best. We're willing to give our very best to that thing in hopes that it will bring the satisfaction and joy that our heart is longing for. And what is ironic is that the disciples say, why this waste? As this woman poured out the perfume on the head of Jesus. But Judas was wasting his worship and ultimately his life. Because your life is wasted if you spend it on yourself. But you can never waste your life when you pour it out for Jesus. So think about those things that are precious to you, those things that you've been clinging to and longing for. Is it possible this morning that Jesus is saying, yes, that thing, that thing you've been clinging to, that dream you've been longing for, that resource that you've said, no, I've got to protect this thing at all costs. Is it possible that it's begun to grip your heart at the level of an idol? Because this is something we all need to be warned against. Our hearts are idol factories constantly putting our love and our trust and our obedience in something other than God, looking to those things for what God only and exclusively can provide. Let me ask you a question of application. Before we do that, let me get to Matthew 16. For whoever will save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Up to this point, Jesus, as he's been teaching, has been saying there's two ways of living. There's two eternal destinies. And the choices we make in the present are charting our course for where we will spend eternity. So here's our question. 
We all worship something. The question is this morning, what holds your heart? Now, you might want to very quickly say, it's Jesus. It's God. I love him and I want to serve him. Let me ask you a few diagnostic questions. What are those good desires that tend to become ruling desires in your heart? What are those things that as they come into your life, you have a hard time saying no to? What's those first things that you think of in the morning when you get out of bed? What's the last thing that you're thinking of as you're drifting off to sleep at night? What is the desire that's constantly whispering in your ear, I need more and I need it now? On the back of your handout, if you got one in the bulletin, there's a series of diagnostic questions that are taken from a book by Robert Thune called Gospel Eldership that I just find incredibly helpful. And I encourage you in, in your ABFs or in your time of personal devotion to reflect on these questions. Because the truth is, there is a deep danger that we can focus our heart on something that is valuable but not supremely valuable. That we can mortgage our whole life thinking that it will bring satisfaction only to realize at the final judgment when it is too late that we've poured out our life for the wrong things, things that are empty and worthless. That's exactly what Judas is doing in this moment. He goes to the chief priest saying, I'll give everything in order to betray Jesus because he is ultimately worthless to me. And what I want us to understand here is that the way that we uproot these idols, the way that we put off these lesser desires, is not by gritting our teeth and saying, I need to stop doing these things. No, the way that we do them is by displacing them with the wonder of worship of Christ. That it is not guilt-based obedience. It's not based on trying to conform to an external expectation. But rather, it's being delighted and satisfied in Christ. It's understanding who he is even as we come to the table and we take the bread and we drink this cup. We remember that we relate to him only by grace. And that as we do that, we are filled with wonder and joy and gratitude to where we say, God, I want to reorient every aspect of my life. Lord, how do you want me to spend my money? Where do you want me to invest in loving others? How can I serve here in the church? How can I pour out my life? What areas of sin do I need to repent of? You see, Judas pretended to care about the poor, but he never actually cared about the poor because he never truly loved God. And so Jesus exposes his hypocrisy and ultimately his idolatry. But you see, Judas is a warning for every one of us because any one of the disciples would have looked at Judas and said, he's one of us. He is on the inside. He is a model of what it means to follow Jesus. But he was dangerously deceived. Judas followed Jesus. He witnessed his miracles and teaching. He even did miracles himself. But he was never a genuine believer. He was one of the goats. He was one of the people warned about in Matthew chapter 7 who would stand before Jesus in the last judgment. Say, Lord, did we not do miracles in your name and cast out demons in your name? And Jesus would say, depart from me. I never knew you. Friends, worship is not just the songs that we sing or the gatherings here in this building. Worship is living all of our life for God's glory. Surrendering to his greatness and recognizing our humility. 
That just as this woman poured out her very best in genuine love, in complete devotion, in proportional giving, and in humble service, God is calling us to do this very thing. But now finally, I want you to notice Christ's conclusion in verses 10 through 13. But Jesus, aware of this, aware of the disciples grumbling among themselves after her gift, said to them, why do you trouble this woman? For she's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. There's a lot that we could unpack here, but there's one simple conclusion that we need to recognize. That although they were recognizing an important response to the poor around them, they were losing sight of what was supremely important. And that was loving Christ, valuing him and responding to him in sacrificial devotion. And so he says, why do you trouble this woman? For she's done a beautiful thing. What the disciples have called a wasteful thing, Jesus has called a beautiful thing. And he uses this as both Judas and the woman are standing there to teach them a lesson about worship. He then goes on to say that you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Now, for a regular human being to say this would be shockingly arrogant, wouldn't it? To say, well, don't worry about the poor. You need to put your focus on me. But Jesus recognizes that he is the only fountain of living water. He is the only one who can satisfy our deepest needs and our greatest desires. And so he says this woman has put her focus in the right place. And yes, you'll always have the poor, and that's important to do. But if you're not rightly oriented to God in worship, in love, and in faith, your solutions for the poor are going to rest on the surface rather than at the heart level. So I want to just caution us as believers this morning to recognize that. That if we aren't loving God rightly, we cannot love our brothers and sisters in Christ, or even our neighbors around the world in the right way. We'll be prone to focus on making better laws, serving more meals, or refining better policies. And all those things are good things that we ought to be devoted to, but they're not the ultimate thing. The ultimate thing is Jesus. He is the source of hope for this world that is dark and desperately in need of hope and salvation. And so he says, she has done a beautiful thing. But then he goes on to explain that in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Now this doesn't mean that this woman had some premonition or even had put all the pieces together that Jesus was going to be dying and being buried and raised from the dead. But rather, this expression of worship was also a foreshadowing, a, something with symbolic significance that Christ recognized that the disciples would not recognize until much later. But then he says, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. You see, he says, this is symbolizing the fact that I'm going to die and be buried. Now, most of the time, death is not associated with good news, right? We've lost a number of people in our church over the last year. And there's not a single one who is sitting here who would say, when that person died, it felt like good news to me. But you see, this one death that Christ would die was the very basis of the good news. As he took the punishment as our substitute on the cross, 
It made it so that we could draw near to God in worship, that we could be rightly related to him by faith and through his grace. And so he explains that this symbol of preparing his body for burial was a symbol of the gospel. But now notice in the context, this essence of the gospel is not how we get to heaven. It's not even fundamentally how we get forgiven. The message of the gospel is that God is supremely worthy of our worship. That a relationship with him is the only thing that will satisfy. And that Christ, by his death and burial and resurrection, has made a way for us to repent and turn and draw near to him, to be forgiven by his grace, to be adopted into his family. And for that reason, Jesus says, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. I believe it's because what she is doing is a picture of the gospel, but also her posture is an example for us. As she kneels in wonder at the feet of Jesus, and as she humbly recognizes that she is dependent on him completely, and that he is worthy of her greatest gift, her most precious possession. In a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. I would encourage you to beware, to not take this as something that's just routine, something that we just go through the motions on, but rather we allow God to examine our heart, to expose our heart idols, to say, what is it that I'm clinging to? And as Jesus puts his finger of conviction on our heart, saying, that thing, I want you to surrender. Please understand that he is not doing it to, to make you miserable, but to draw you into deeper joy, because our hearts are so deceptive and so destructive. Just like Judas, I have seen person after person shipwreck their faith for things that are ultimately worthless. They'll throw away their families for a few moments of pleasure, They'll mortgage their future in greed, thinking they can have it all right now. They'll destroy their bodies with addiction, saying, I just can't say no. Friends, as we come to the table, it is both a time of celebration of what Christ has done and consecration of ourselves, confessing our sins, kneeling at the foot of the cross, responding in wonder and worship to the God who gave his son that we might be called his children. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for the morning of worship we've had already. And we recognize that as selfish people who are prone to pride, we so often cling to things that are lesser things. God, I pray that we would worship you this morning with open hands and humble hearts. I pray that you would put your hand of conviction on us, that we would turn from those lesser things that can never satisfy, and that we would live in a way that honors you because we love you. And that everyone who is gathered here this morning would see, we love you. Just as this woman poured out her most precious possession, that we pour out our lives, for you are worthy. We pray that you would be honored and glorified, not just in our moments of worship corporately, but in our scattered worship individually. As whatever we eat or drink and whatever we do, we do it for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.